two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro and with me is my co-host Derek Alton and we're at the 2022 Code for America conference in Arlington, Virginia. That's right. And in this episode, we are talking about diversity, equity and inclusion in the civic tech community. And as part of that, we are joined by Brian Whitaker, the Acting Chief Innovation Officer of the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and Angelica Angelica Quirarte, you got this. Yes. <laughs> the Federal <laughs> Partnerships Director with Tech Talent. Derek, help me give these fine and beautiful people a big warm welcome. Thank yeah. you. There you go. Thanks for having us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, let's get right down to it. How do we make sure diversity, equity, and inclusion is done meaningfully and not just as window dressing? Hmm. Angelica, 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 go ahead. Um, I also go by Angie, so (laughs) if that is easier, you're welcome to call me that. Um, I think that's a great question, and actually in my prior role, I was Assistant Secretary at the Government Operations Agency in the state of California. And a few years ago, we had an initiative where we're trying to transform the way that we, we being the state, recruit and train people into government and then retain them to make sure that we have a workforce that reflects the population and diversity at the time of the state. Um, and I think what we came to learn is that it was very, very hard because the way that we hire is very disjointed. In what way? So typically, the person that's actually the hiring manager, the supervisor, doesn't really play a role, or plays a role, but not a direct role when it comes to picking or selecting the person, uh, because you're operating on a, on a civil service system, and so it has to be competitive. Actually, most of our authority for hiring in the state at the time, actually still, right, like, comes from the, the California Constitution. And so um, I think there's many constraints that I think impede flexibility and intent when it comes to hiring diverse talent because you have to go through a process that has been established and reinforced over time and over decades. And there is not one single person that is responsible to adapting that system and those policies to make sure that we can put in in the intent and make sure that we can have the ability to be more creative in how we bring in diverse perspectives into government. Um, Because typically a lot of the people that get in know how to get in because you know someone that can walk you through the process, right? And I think in a way, unintentionally, uh, it's kind of doing a disservice to the civil servants. Um, And part of the work that we have to do is figure out how do we, again, become more intentional, not just one hire at a time, but for organizations that are really thinking about transforming uh, what the the representation of the, the people that work in their teams. How can we give them the tools and connect them to one another so that they're able to successfully bring in more diverse perspectives into into the space. Brian, you work for the FDIC and and Angie 
just made some pretty bold statements about the hiring process being a little disjointed. <laughs> Can you speak a little bit to what she had to say and maybe some of the things you guys are doing to, to make it less disjointed? Sure. You know, I would say uh, on that front, I'm relatively new to FDIC, so I can't really speak so much in regards to uh, the hiring process as, uh, you know, in my new acting role, I haven't necessarily gone through it just yet. But what I can say is, to piggyback on the original question, um, there's a part of this that is relatively new and in, in being spoken to, and that's the B and belonging, right? How do you... How do you make someone feel like they're aware of the organization that they're that they're in? What's happening? That they can contribute meaningfully? That their perspective and uh, their lived experience is valued? I think that's one element too, right? You know, uh, not looking at diversity from just the pipeline of talent that you have coming in, but also how do you retain the folks that are currently there that they can then be either a microphone for you or even a conduit. For additional diversity in in that regard. Yeah. yeah I guess a, a question that comes to mind for me uh, in this is almost like the idea of tokenism within it. Mm. And I know I've got friends who like I work within the government of Canada, and I've got friends who work within the government of Canada, and they express great frustration of like, oh, I'm that token representative. So mm-hmm. how do we move beyond to that tokenism that can happen within the attempt to be diverse and inclusive to something that's much more like a deeper belonging mm-hmm. and much more equitable? You know, I think there's two things I'll say. Uh, one is considering ERGs. How can they be your strategic partner? So it isn't the only person that's in your specific division, but you might have multiple across the organization that can speak to the culture and the environment. And then I'd also say there's, there's a hard part about government hiring and government work uh, I'd say it's sort of the unwritten job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very hard to find a government position description that describes strategic relationships with universities, code boot camps, and things of that nature in, in regards to not just having a transactional, hello, HBCU, I have an opening, but, you know, you've longstanding relationships where you've added value, communicated, and, uh, you know, partnered to actually make meaningful change. Yeah. So just a quick question. You used an acronym there that I'm not familiar with. Oh, uh, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Okay, brilliant. HBCUs. I think on my end, I I feel like I've been that token, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when I started my career in government, that initiative that I mentioned earlier... I happened to be the youngest person in the office in a position of, or an office that had a lot of authority when it comes to figuring out how do you govern a state. Um, and part of my my task was to represent the millennial generation in a lot of our work, and I'm just one person. Piece of cake, right? Yeah. Real simple, yeah. easy task. Um, <laughs> you, you, you become like a, a delegated representative, yes. a giant cohort of millions no of people. Pressure, yeah. Right? No pressure. Yeah. And actually, I think... I was able to leverage the fact that I was in an agency that had authority and convening authority specifically um, to invite others to the table. So anytime that anyone asked me, it's like, well, I'm just one person. Why don't we actually talk to the people that are literally going through this process right now and find out what the pain points are and create and build community around that. Um, and that actually helped spun up other efforts, including my separate, I have on the side a nonprofit called NextGov. Um, that actually brings public servants into government and then helps inspire them to want to 
stay in government. Uh, we do volunteering events with local nonprofits and things along those lines. Um, so it goes back to, I guess, the first question is, how can you use the space that you're in to be able to be intentional about how you bring in others so you don't become just the one token millennial that's representing uh, like many, many people on, on policies that you're developing. Um, and then I think the other thing I would add is when I built my, my digital team and my prior role, I was leading um, part of the California digital response to, to the pandemic. Um, as a manager supervisor, I created, again, that space where we would celebrate specific months, like African-American like, month or like Women's Month. Um, and we would have members of the team just, I guess, in a sense, kind of check their biases or, or kind of make them aware of what they don't know. Um, so that, again, you're kind of not putting the pressure on the token person to do all the education, like it, it really takes the entire team. And then how, how do you as a leader create the space to kind of baseline everyone on, around that? Well, let me ask you guys both a question around those lines because one of the things in the work area, those forced HR activities can seem like forced HR activities that are borderline like sensitivity training mm -hmm. that a lot of people, particularly people like me, good old white boys kind of deal that you know, may not see the need because they don't see they, themselves as having a problem in the space. How do you balance that sentiment? Because obviously, if you're putting a, an event for women or, you know, visible minorities, that caters to that audience, but that's not who you're trying to target necessarily, mm. right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to target essentially the non-converted in a lot of different ways. So I'd love to, to hear your, talk, your, your, your thoughts on that. You want to start? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Brian, all you. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> easy question, right? You know, I'd say it's it's definitely a difficult conversation to have, and I think it's one where if you channel the energy to either the service or the product that you're trying to uh, create, and if a value amongst the organization is one of quality, uh, if 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 it's one of equity, how how do we make the best product? provide the best service if we aren't considering the edge cases, right? We're going to make, maybe make it a metrics conversation. We're missing a certain population of people and their influence and their needs based on the makeup of our organization and the lack of diversity. How do we expand that, right? So, so you know, focusing it around delivery and performance of, of what you've all agreed to is important, I think is one way to sort of shift that conversation. I really like that. Yep. It, it, it just seems so practical and, and easy for every way to engage with. It's like, okay, we, we, this is a common thing that we can all agree on. Yep. And from that, we can move, figure ways to move forward and into the spaces that can be really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. the, um, the, the other issue I'd like to bring up to you guys, because again, this is a fascinating exercise just for me alone, right? The the element of, I don't even know how to say the question without sounding like a, like a jackass, which is you, you brought up this idea of metrics and measures and making mm -hmm. sure we reach quotas of hiring. Mm -hmm. That is a very polarizing position in a lot of different areas, which is like the best person should get the job, 
But at the same time, not everyone has the same opportunity to become the best person for that job. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you guys can speak perhaps on the element of training, and I'll give you where I'm sort of going with this. There was a great conversation by a, a lady by the name of Daisy, and I forget her last name now. Mm. She did a, converse, a, a talk about how she's training people into the world of code. Code the dream. Code the dream, exactly. Yep. It's a fantastic talk. Mm -hmm. and, and how she's part, she was very particular about reaching out to audiences that would never otherwise know that they exist. Because mm -hmm. yeah. otherwise, they open up the doors and everyone comes in and they're not necessarily reaching out the people that they require. So maybe let's talk a little bit about making sure that people have an equal opportunity mm -hmm. to, to be trained mm -hmm. for yeah. those positions. Right. Yeah. I think actually what you're mentioning right now reminds me of an example that came up during the panel earlier today where Jennifer, who was on our panel, mentioned that she was trying to recruit a pharmacist into her organization to do research, and her colleagues and peers didn't recognize her, the skills of this pharmacist as someone that would bring in valuable experience into the work. Um, turns out that Google ended up hiring um, this pharmacist at the end of the day. Um, and I think, to go, to go back to your point about training, it's, it's funny because part of one of the initiatives that we implemented was actually forced, mandated through legislative like process training for managers, supervisors, and executives, um, where every two years I think they have to recertify their hours, um, and I think training is a vehicle to kickstart conversations. But if we really want to have change when it comes to like engaging people through a training mechanism, you have to engage them in a different way. So it's not just talking at them, it's like engaging with them through the training process. And I think the best example I can think of of how we did this to kind of begin to, to change the mindset of people is experiential training. And so I led a small initiative called the Alpha of CA.gov in the state of California. And it wasn't just bringing in designers and, and engineers and product folks and pairing them up with other folks at the state level. I also brought the executive sponsors at the department level and we showed the before and the after like we're here to learn from you as well like you're managing this service like you have a critical audience and a mission in your organization and we're here to kind of think through together how we might rethink the way in which we're delivering the service right now um, and I can't tell you how valuable it was to engage with them in that way because then they wanted more. And so then now they're thinking about how do I bring in the same set of skills into my organization to redesign the service so that I, it can improve the experience of the people that, they, um, that are the recipients of, of those programs. Um, so I think, again, it just goes back, goes back to thinking about training and for whom, and then who are you targeting to make sure that they're not just hearing it, but that they're seeing it. And like putting it in the context of, and the words that, that the intended audience can understand. I think I've heard a couple different uh, approaches to this, um, sp specifically as it relates to training. So one of those is uh, a company in the civic tech space, Nava, has mm -hmm. opened up apprenticeships, right, to attract uh, let's say more diverse and or uh, career transitioning folks into the civic tech space. But that sort of then leads to the question of how can 
the federal government or just the government in general consider how it's impacting DEIA with its dollars, right? You know, more often than not, a government uh, agency may ask for a subject matter expert. How about we spread that out, get some early career talent in here? Because we'd all be kidding ourselves if we didn't see how people went from industry to government. This is a feeder source that the government can also benefit from as well. So I'd say taking a look at how we structure our contracts, considering a variety of skill sets and seeing this as an opportunity to one, get diverse perspectives on the problem that we're trying to solve, but also two, diversify the talent that's sitting right in front of us that we could potentially bring in. It's interesting because one of the things that I know I've bumped into a bunch uh, in my work is this idea of engagement fatigue. Mm. And one of the things that you brought up that's really interesting is this idea that one of the ways to get around engagement fatigue is to actually bring in the diverse perspectives right into the team itself. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like you're engaging with another group. Those perspectives are right within your team itself, which I think is amazing. For me, that's been an amazing reframe Mm -hmm. to think about how do we bring those perspectives right into the team. Because the other part of it that for me has always been an interesting question around this is this question around power Mm -hmm. and how does power play out? And when you have engagement over there, there's a power imbalance. Mm. When, When you bring it into the team, it shifts the power relationships around how you create and how you do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the question that is sitting with me, is actually something you brought up earlier, was this idea of retention. Mm-hmm. So great, bring people in, give them you know, training, talent, that's great. But if there isn't a sustainable and healthy work environment, people leave because they go to places that are better suited for them. Mm-hmm. So how do we make sure that this, you know, the way we approach diversity, equity, and inclusion is sustainable, we're retaining the talent within the teams and growing it and expanding it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why um, it goes back to the intent of who you hire and who you bring on your team. And then making sure that you as a leader, manager, supervisor, create the space to ensure that you're checking up on them, that the onboarding never ends, essentially. Like you have to continue to keep them engaged, to keep them challenged, to give them meaningful work, uh, to create spaces for them to grow. Uh, Like being a manager, a leader, a supervisor is very hands-on. It's very exhausting, but it's so rewarding when you see the the light bulb go off and like someone all of a sudden it just clicks and they're empowered. And so it's it's putting in the work to make sure that you can do that for everyone that works with you. Let me ask you about that because I feel. We've had multiple conversations around the written job and then the job that isn't written. And what is the opportunity to sort of start baking in retention as it pertains to management, the belonging, the inclusion, right? Not just because Angie's a great person that invests in these people. That might not be written in the job description for Angie. But how do we get that on paper? Yeah. There's a lot to be said about the power of putting things in writing and on paper. And I think, I honestly think that one job description at a time, one contract at a time, like we would be able to shift the dynamics because you would be requiring it in how you hire, who you hire, as well as who you contract with um, to make sure that you're bringing in um, that diverse talent and and really changing the status quo. And actually, I'm going to chime in right now because we are live at the Code for America Summit And as such, 
we have a little bit of like we got a new invited guest a at the table. Guest. Exactly, what? surprise guest. Oh my God. And it's such a surprise. Exactly. <laughs> surprise. Long time no see. <laughs> and it's such a surprise that I don't actually have a proper intro. So I'll let you introduce yourself. Go for it. Hi, I'm Victor Udoiwa. I serve as Chief Experience Officer and Service Design Lead for the SBIR STTR programs at NASA and do a lot of community design projects on the side. You, you wow. never really think of NASA in the context of like Code for America yeah. necessarily. Yeah. So um, you said a mouthful real quick. Just take a few moments. Like, what do you do, man? <laughs> what do I do? So I help build technologies for NASA in partnership specifically with small businesses. So we have an economic development mission, but what I specifically work on is achieving that mission through small businesses who have a technology that faces the valley of death. So they lack certain skill sets, uh, networking, or even resources like financial resources. So, so we help by giving financial and non-financial assistance in building the technology so that it can transition either to be commercialized or to be infused into a NASA project. And we have a focus also racial and gender equity lens in that we try to improve the participation of women-owned, small businesses, veteran-owned, service-disabled, veteran-owned, and minority small businesses as well. Every time I hear Victor talk, I learn something new. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. No, no pressure. Yeah, always, they always do this to me. Yeah. Is, is Brian and I can step away now. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, and I, absolutely, Brian and, 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 and Helica, it was a pleasure speaking with you both and getting some uh, insight on this. Victor will take a few moments and, and keep to, uh, speaking with you and learning more what's on, going on in NASA. Sure. Yeah. And uh, Derek and everyone, let's say a good warm goodbye Thank to Brian you. and Helica. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. This is where it gets good, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> no nice transition. <laughs> So, so yes, Victor, this conversation is about diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. And you're just sort of pivoting a little bit towards that conversation. Tell us what's going on in NASA and particularly the work that you're, you're responsible for in making sure that that's happening uh, within NASA. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky that we aren't in a reactionary posture. We're not just reacting to the executive order on equity by President Biden. We actually have been doing this work before that came out. Um, we have, we've had a focus on internally at NASA on gender equity, racial equity, etc. Um, it's been voted, I want to say, the best place in the federal government to work for the past 10 years by employees of the federal government and also one of the most um, diverse places. So it's a really great place to be. I enjoy working there and we just understand that if we continue the way we're continuing where most of our technology is developed by businesses, small businesses anyway, the ones that I work with that are owned primarily by white men, or we even, I even help with a program that works with small businesses that work in collaboration with research institutions. And again, we're trying to increase the participation of specifically research universities that are historically black colleges or universities, HBCUs. HSIs, Hispanic Serving Institutions, TCUs, Tribal Colleges and Universities, NANTUs, Native American Non-Tribal Universities, mm. Alaska Native, Hawaii Native Institutions, and Asian American and Pacific Islander Institutions. But if we don't have them as a crucial, uh, competent partner in the work that we're doing, we're actually missing a huge contribution, and we would be much further along than we are now 
if we had um, them fully participating. So we're trying to do our best to, to better diversify. They are out there, and we just need to do our work to, to get them in there. So I guess the follow-up question I have to that is like, okay, so what does that mean practically? Like if, I, if I'm another organization and I hear NASA's been rocking it and everybody's pointing NASA as an example, what can I do from like learning from you? In terms of the... Diversity, the, equity, inclusion, bringing that into how my business works so that I get rated number one uh, you know, within the federal government for what I'm doing. Yeah, I, well, so I, I look at it on, on, from two sides. So I'm, I'm working on the customer experience, which would be the small businesses and the research institutions that we work with. But I also look at it on the employee experience. So I'm working on both sides of that. And number one, I build in DEIA metrics into my customer experience metrics and into my employee experience metrics. I track the experience of various underutilized communities, not just a global parameter, but specifically what is their experience, this group or that group, so that we can improve it. And if you don't know what their experience is, specifically specific groups that aren't participating, then it's hard for you to improve it. So we go out, we do a lot of outreach, we go to conferences, um, uh, I go to universities to talk. Um, we go to places where they are to let them know and increase awareness. And so we look at the entire pipeline of our programs from awareness to desire to interest to applying to getting funding and getting assistance and working with us and continuing to do that and looking at all the different gaps and trying to intervene in those places. You mentioned a moment ago about measuring the metrics of experience. I'd love for you to give us some examples of what you mean. Yeah, so I think, you know, in in general terms, people look at, when they talk about experience, they talk about satisfaction, number one, uh, efficiency and effectiveness, just in general. But a lot of times there are ways in which those um, high categories of various metrics can hide the specific experience of specific groups that you're completely missing. So we actually have, like in our strategy, targets. We want to have X percentage of women-owned businesses taking part in our program and working with us. That's what I mean, like we actually have targets that we're shooting for and we could say, hey, we didn't reach it, we did reach it. Um, and we wanna be committed to the objectives while being agile with respect to our tactics, activities, initiatives so that we can say, oh gosh, we're not making any movement on that, let's change what we're doing, still being committed and try a different pathway. And so part of that even means how do you operationalize that in your workforce? So across the government, one of the biggest things that I've seen is that people have what I call output-based performance metrics. I did A, I did B, I did C, give me my rating of a five out of a five. And I've moved my team anyway to outcome-based metrics. Don't tell me what you did, tell me what the outcome of what you did was. What did you influence? And it has the effect of making people say, oh gosh, if I'm not seeing those key results, let me change what I'm doing so I can get to that. And so that coupled with the fact that I try to make diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility everybody's job um, is one way that we kind of really um, embody it. I think one of the problems that happens when you hire someone and you say, okay, you're the chief diversity officer, you're the equity advisor, people implicitly, not explicitly think, okay, that's that person's job, we've got it taken care of, now I can kind of do my own thing. 
And that's exactly what we don't want. If It's fine to have someone in that role, but the role should really be a coordinator, a facilitator, and everybody should be doing it. Because it's really hard to have just one person or a few people doing it. We really want it, um, everybody to be doing it because everyone has different networks. They work on different parts of our service, and we want that infused everywhere. So bringing out based uh, performance reviews into our process and, and then sticking diversity, equity, inclusion into everyone's performance plan is another way that we look at it. I guess a question I have is, this all sounds great. <laughs> For me, one of the things I see a big issue with governments right now is this question around trust. And nowhere do I think that that's stronger, this distrust with government institutions than with around questions around diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility. Like that seems to be a place where there's a lot of distrust and for a lot of really good reasons. So how do we bridge that trust? How do we build that trust? Yeah, I, I, I think in short, it's just going to be step at a time, project at a time, service at a time. I also think that the work that you're talking about of building trust goes against the culture that we have of urgency. Go fast as possible. Uh, make it as quick as possible, get it out there, show results by this quarter, by next quarter, before the next election, if your company get the profits in. And trust building is slow. It really is slow work. Um, are you willing to do the work? And in a lot of places, both in government and outside of government, when you ask to be able to do the work that does build trust, people don't want to give it to you because they don't have time and they want to get results so they can show their superiors, so they can be appointed for another term, so they can win another election. Um, but it's, it's really multi-year, multi-decade um, type of work to build trust. And it builds slowly. It, it's actually faster to erode trust than it is to build it. So as much as we've eroded it, it's going to take much longer to, to build it. So we've got to do it piece by piece. So it's just, you got to be invested into the work. Are there examples that you can think of where you see it actually happening. So it's definitely not the norm, but are there edge cases where like, yes, they're actually doing it right here. They're building trust. They're shifting the way the relationships work. They're shifting the way that power works. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I do it a lot in my work. Um, specifically, I talked about this earlier at a session that happened earlier, but I do what I call radical participatory design. So what that means is that as opposed to people who do participatory design where they say, I'm going to do all this work with my design and development team, then at this point, I'm going to bring in community members, and then I'll do these types of activities with them, and then we'll finish up the work without them. What we do instead is that we make up the team. The actual team doing the work is made up of community members. So I have employees who are not designers or developers working to improve the employee experience. I have customers working to improve the customer experience. I always make sure that the community members outnumber the professional designers and developers and that they're leading the way um, and so that, such that the community owns not just the outcomes but also the narratives around the outcomes. And in that way, we've been, been able to shift uh, power dynamics. Not completely, but we're shifting it such that whenever I've done it or we have done it well. Like one of the ways I can evaluate whether or not a participatory process was was fully radical, fully radically participatory is the um, the shifts in power. People either give up power or people move up in power. And one of the outcomes is people end up getting jobs. People get offered jobs or they, they learn skills in doing the process that leads them into uh, new opportunities, new skills. It's even happened on my team at NASA where 
you know, someone was offered a job. It wasn't me. I didn't step in, but just naturally happened that someone lear learned skills, loved what they did, and uh, executives noticed it, and they offered jobs. And so that's some of the cool things I see happening in which um, people are um, being recognized not for the experience that they have, but to really elevate it to what it truly is, is expertise. Um, when we talk about knowledge theory, there's various types of knowledge. I'll, I'll just mention three. One, there's in, institutional mainstream knowledge, which is normally what we think of. Like, I studied coding, I studied design, whatever. Then there's lived experiential knowledge. And then there's cultural knowledge, like for a group, a body of people, and spiritual knowledge for a group, a body of people. And normally what we've done is we've elevated institutional mainstream knowledge like the people who have what it takes are the people who study coding who study design and development um, and then you know maybe there's some people that have some lived experiential knowledge but really uh, research justice data justice says all three of those are equal and specifically in, in my work with participatory design we say that actual lived experience lived experiential knowledge is higher than or greater than institutional knowledge a good example would be like imagine you go to the doctor it is really difficult for a doctor, a medical doctor, to help you based on their textbook institutional knowledge without knowing anything of your experience of what hurts, when it hurts, how it hurts, why it hurts. They really need that experience mixed in with what they do in order to help you. In fact, there was an entire TV show called House where, if you ever saw it, the, the doctors would, would break into the homes of the patients because the patient, for whatever reason, wasn't revealing information that they needed. Everybody lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love the show. Yeah, <laughs> great show. But it's possible in many cases, not all, not all cases, but many cases that I, if I listen to my body, oh, I'm dehydrated, oh, I'm hungry. Um, even a pregnant woman giving labor knows that based on the pain, if they move in certain positions, it helps to facilitate the birth. So um, in participatory design, we kind of elevate lived experiential knowledge and it helps direct the work. You bring up a lot of things that are great when spoken, but freaking hard to measure. Yeah. Trust and lived in experiential yeah. knowledge. Uh, trust, how do you really fundamentally measure trust? I don't know. Lived experiential, lived experiential knowledge is almost like you, you give a, like a degree from Harvard yeah. or a degree from Cornell or whatever. When you put those two side by side, we're talking about two very different things, but two very similar things. But one of them is technically valued more than the other yeah. because it has a history around it. I know how to position a degree from Cornell versus a degree from Harvard or a degree from, you know, a small school in northern Canada kind of deal, right? But how do you put value on experiential knowledge? How is someone's experiences in a way measurable compared to say, another person's experiences or even compared to a degree that was the thing with masters uh, uh, masters of business business administration right mm -hmm. all, all, all these mbas were coming out of school with no business knowledge they would come in with these tactics and in the real world it was not applicable and then conversely that's when they started uh establishing the executive mba programs right yeah so i'm really curious to know i i'm totally with you we need to bring that empathy back, which is where the experiential knowledge comes in. But how is it measured compared to, say, a degree from Harvard or an MBA? So I, I wonder if we could look at it from a different perspective, because yeah. I, I feel like, could be wrong, but I feel like it's actually really, really, really well valued. But the problem is that we take in a kind of, I don't know what the right term is, maybe a patriarchal extractive approach. I value it enough 
that I'm going to commit the sins of anthropology from the past and just go in, get it from you, get what I need so I can do this thing and say, hey, look what I did. I did an amazing job. But the question is, okay, you, you value it enough that you're trying to pull it out of people, but can you value the people enough to bring them into the process and let them own that process and own that story? That's the thing. So I, I feel like people value it enough that they know that if I don't get that and use it to build the service, it won't serve the people that it needs to, right? Especially in the public sector, right? I, li I worked in the private sector where they'd say, well, just build it so that it works for 60%. I don't care about the other 40% because we can make enough money. But in the government, like, no, you are required. If you're going to deliver the mail, it needs to be able to get to everyone. So figure out a way to do it. That's our mandate. And so... I feel like we I feel like we we do value it but we take extractive methods to get it instead of saying how can I value the whole person and bring them in um, into the process. So I don't know. I'm not answering your question but I I'm going around it by saying I think we do value it and we we actually need to now um, properly compensate it, properly recognize it. And I think that's because a lot of these conversations I've never really been put in a position to speak about because you know, I do have that privilege of being a white guy that speaks English yeah. kind of deal. But it's, it's that question. It's like, how do you hire that talent over someone that's got an MBA in, say, anthropology, right? That has the, the tools established around them. It's sort of like that, the wise person versus the educated person, yeah. the street smart versus book smart. Yeah. It's really hard, I think, in a business setting to, from a hiring practice, to put that in a job description. I think. Yeah, but I mean, start, <laughs> right? Give it, give it a try. I have seen jobs. I remember the, at one time I worked for a multinational corporation uh, out of London. And in the job description, it said, looking for someone who had lived outside of North America for two years. Like they put it in there. Um, and they were allowed to. Um, the rules might be different depending on where you work, what level of government that you work in, but they were allowed to do that. So I think there are ways to do it and if, if you care about it and if it's what you want put it in the, in the job description and go out and look for it and see um, I, I have a, I work with about 12 to 18 interns at any time oh, and I wow. specifically I'm not looking for the skill set of coding or design but I'm looking for a really diverse team background wise where they come from their academic majors um, and I'm trying to bring those experiences, especially people who have had experiences working with small businesses, uh, et cetera, into our program. So I actually look for it, and they allow, me to, they allow me to do it. But I had to first voice it. Is this okay? Can we figure out a way? Um, I also, I've established a collaborative relationship with my legal people. So sometimes what happens is a program, a program person, by nature of what they're doing, increases risk. Security, finance, legal—they try to reduce risk. So yeah. I, I, yeah. So I've always said, hey, instead of just saying no, um, how about we, you know, have a meeting where we do like a project charter and get on the same page and say our our collective mission together is to do this, and your mission isn't um, to save money; it's to do this as cheaply as possible. Your mission isn't to just be safe; it's to do this as safely as possible. Your mission isn't just to avoid any type of liability, it's to do this um, uh, with, with, with as little liability as possible, right? So that changes the orientation, and then instead of just telling me no, they're like, yeah, that, that won't work, but one way we could do it is if we do, like they, they actually work to find alternatives. And so I like that kind of reframing that I've been able to um, 
work on with my with all the people that try to reduce risk financially, security-wise, and legal-wise. Yeah, a question I've been wanting to ask for a while now, actually. So this sounds great and amazing, and I think a lot of our listeners will be like, yeah, absolutely. How do I convince my management, my leadership team, my organization to let me do this? How have you been able to carve out the space to do these really innovative and exciting things that we all should be doing, and we know that, You've actually been able to do it. How were you able to get that space, that support, that endorsement from your organizations to make it happen? It's a great question. There's a lot of different ways. I think all of them involve starting small. So sometimes, depending on what you're talking about, what you're trying to get permission to do, sometimes I've been able to do it because it's a project nobody cares about. (laughs) So can I find a project that is small enough that people don't care too much about, but still big enough that if it does work, I can use it as a portfolio of examples that show success that we can go further. Sometimes, the very first time I did uh, radical participatory design, I was in a private sector company, and the reason I was able to do it because it was a failed project. It had failed three times. The VP left because of the failure. The project lead stayed in the company but switched off to something else, and they finally said to me, well, Victor, okay, do whatever you want. And I was able to do it in a different way because it had failed and they just, they had given up. And I had the freedom to do that. Sometimes I've had issues where like, okay, people aren't willing to allow outside customers from the community or users from the community be part of the process. But the wonderful thing about service design is um, we do service design to improve both the customer experience and the employee experience because we know the employee experience can affect the customer experience. Where the product design, you're just doing the user experience. So as a first step, if it's a service, a holistic service, sometimes employers will allow me to do participatory processes with employees first. And when they see, okay, well, these employees are helping and doing the process, okay, may, then they're willing to maybe try to, you know, as a, a next step on, on customers or maybe a few employee, ex, uh, participatory employee design projects and then they'll switch over. Um, they, it d- depends on the objective. So, sometimes things I'll do is like, hey, you know, it, it, what, what, do you, what do you ultimately want? And they tell me, and then, okay, why do you want that? And then they tell me why, 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 to get to some ultimate uh, root need or problem they want to solve. And I say, well, if we're able to solve that problem or fulfill that need through another route, would you still be happy? They don't always say yes, but sometimes they, they do. And it gives me the, the, the ability to go across. Or, or I might do the whole thing of like mapping assumptions. Like, okay, you want this thing that I'm not sure is the best thing. Can you give me at least a week or a few days to map out all the assumptions and test some of them mm. so that just in case it's not the best thing, we can save you some money or say, so sometimes they allow me to do that. So there's a lot of different kind of routes in that we try to use, but definitely all of them evolve starting small yeah. and we don't just jump straight to, to, to that uh, end stage of what we want. Also, depending again, it depends on what you're trying to request, but if, if you're trying to request like money to pay people because you don't want to do it unethically, and remember, there's two components to that. There's the equality, like if, if I'm doing the same work as a community member, on, we're equal members on a team, we should be paid the same, but also oftentimes the community members are giving up time away from a job, away from two jobs, away from no job, but time they could be using to find a job, and for me, I'm just doing this part of my job. In that case, from, a, from an equity perspective, they should be paid more, so one of the things you do is, uh, at least in government, if you're not allowed to pay people directly, you can pay people often through contractors. 
if you if you set it up and you can set up things where maybe they're a subcontractor to the contractors. Uh, some people are able to do it with gift certificates. Um, I've been able, I had one project where we gave them food, breakfast and lunch every day. We paid their travel whenever we needed to move out. Um, I gave recommendations, references, referrals. They became authors on a journal article. They became authors on a second journal article. Every time I came back to that area and I needed to test out a new product or service, I reached out and they were the first people to, to, to help test it out. But the point is, one, there are multitude, multitude of ways to compensate people. Number two, it should be their choice. So allowing them, not allowing them, but let, they should be the ones dictating what they find valuable and then find it, figuring out a way to do that. But oftentimes you can do it through contractors. So those are some things initially I can think of. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you, you brought that up because that was actually one of the things I was thinking about is the compensation piece is so important. You know, an equitable compensation. But governments are not really well designed to do that. I know having worked in government for the last seven, eight years, it is really hard yeah. to move money or any type of resources out through non-traditional means. Yeah. Um, and But it's so important to do that. Yeah. What has helped you in finding those pathways to get those resources out the door? Um, slow education, showing examples from other agencies and things like that. Mm. Um, for Like for us, where I am, we just, we just don't pay people unless there is a contract. So we need a contract in place. We can't just give out money. So because of that, you know, one of the things that you can really do is just put, put language into your solicitation. Like, I want an ethical participatory design process. And then let people bid on it and look at the proposals. And usually, if it's an industry practice, which it is, you compensate people when they're participating, um, you should be able to choose one that gives you the best, gives you the best process. So um, putting in language that gives people flexibility when they propose and then choosing the best proposers that are using really good industry practices that are ethical is one way to kind of do it. Uh, but for us, we need a contract in place. So it either has, it has to be through a contract through a contract or something like that. Other places, they're able to do it. And, um, I know GSA has made some movement and are, are now able to begin um, paying people as they recruit for research. I'm listening to you quite a bit, and I'm reminded of a, a 90s movie called um, Entrapment with Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> I, I know that movie. You know, it's a good movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a good you know, heist movie. Sean Connery, Sean I think. Sean Connery yeah. and a few others. <laughs> But the, the, the essential premise of that movie between the dynamics between the two characters is first you try, then you trust. And I think, especially in the space that, that we're in, what you're trying to do in particular, Victor, or have been able to accomplish in teaching to others is start small, try, then you trust. And then once you have that trust, then you can go for a larger scale. Now, we got to think about wrapping up here. And the, the one thing I have to bring up, if I got, if I got a NASA guy here, yeah. I got to ask this question. Yeah. Mohawk guy. Okay. What's the story there? Because if you're talking about diversity, I think a lot of people, when they saw that launch, they were more interested in Mohawk guy than they were actually about the launch itself. And like, how does a Mohawk guy, how does this guy fit at NASA? And, and not, not only that, but just speak about the whole sort of moment that happened and sort of in, realized in social media that NASA was popular for a guy that worked <laughs> at NASA because he had a Mohawk. <laughs> NASA, NASA is amazing. I, I can't say enough about it. We really, did, like, did you know that um, the, the commitment, the upcoming commitment for going back to the moon, have you heard about it? That we are committed to putting the next, sorry, the first woman on the moon and the first person of color on the moon. Um, so it, it's, it's just super varied. Like, we just, 
there, there are so many wonderful, beautiful stories of, of the people that do, in, do the day in and day in work at NASA. It really is transforming. And that's one of the reasons why I was at 18F before, but I said, you know what, after I finish, I really want to try. It took, me, it took me about a year, but try to get a job directly employed in an agency. And I got really lucky to, to be in one like um, at NASA. So, so specifically, people will say to me, oh, well, you know, the only kind of stuff I could do to help out NASA is like um, if I do hardcore engineering or science. And I'm like, no, we employ all kinds of technology. Like, for instance, think of 3D printing. I know a lot of Mohawk guys that do 3D printing, right? If we're going to go back to the moon, a lot of people don't realize this, but we're going to try to have a sustained presence on the moon like we do with the space station, right? So the, the two people that go, they're going to come back, but we're going to try to replace them with, with more people in the future, right? Um, and this is because we want to use the moon as a launch pad to go to Mars eventually. But if you're going to have people continually cycling in and cycling out on the moon, you need to build infrastructure. Well, if you put a building on a rocket and fly it up, you're going to shoot the cost of fuel astronomically to get that up there. So what we thought, well, what if we could just like build infrastructure up there? Well, how do you build infrastructure? What if we just took the materials up there and we 3D printed? So now we're looking at how do you 3D print in microgravity? So there's all these really cool ways that people can come in, like, and they're like, well, I don't do anything that could apply to NASA. You'd be surprised. Like, there's all kinds of things. There's astrobiology. Um, there's the psychological component of getting astronauts ready to deal with the separation. And so we have all kinds of people from all walks of life, including Mohawk Guy. Um, we <laughs> I, love, I love that just I mentioned Mohawk Guy. We talked about the first woman on the moon, the first person of color on the moon and 3D printing on the moon. In zero gravity. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a roundabout answer to yeah. that. But, but, yeah, <laughs> but, it's, no, but it's great. Yeah. That's exactly where I wanted to, like, what yeah. does it trigger for yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but uh, we do have to think about wrapping up because obviously, you know, you have a lot of things to do and, and we're already at 50 minutes uh, in terms of a total episode, but I want to give a few <laughs> moments here for, for Derek to say a few parting words and uh, go for it, buddy. Oh, man. I, I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, right now I'm like, how do I grow a mohawk so I can join NASA, which will be very hard. I don't have enough hair up top to pull that off. Um, no, there's been... Maybe, maybe, a, maybe a fedora will do. Because right yeah. now that's what, obviously people are not seeing it, but Victor's sporting like a... Is a nice Joey fedora. Jeremiah fedora. <laughs> now, I know a lot of U.S. citizens don't get that Joey Jeremiah sort of <laughs> reference, but if you ever watch Degrassi Junior High, you're right in there. Uh, so go ahead there. I mean, there's so many exciting takeaways for me from this. Uh, I mean, I really uh, enjoyed uh, earlier we were talking about, you know, the importance of focusing on users, products, and services as a way of entering into this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility because it creates that common foundation that we can all talk about. And then from that, you know, like we all agree, this is what we're trying to do. Great. Let's talk about how we get there. Um, this idea, I think uh, you were talking about outputs in, outputs versus outcomes, that really stood out for me. It's mm. like shifting the way we measure things because you, know, you are what you measure and thinking about changing how you measure things makes a really big difference. Uh, and this whole idea of um, just starting small and building off of that because really it comes down to there's a lot of talk. At, you know, summits, there's a lot of talk, a lot of sharing of amazing ideas, but it doesn't mean anything unless you do it. Mm -hmm. And so how do you actually do it? And so, this idea of starting small, being incremental, finding projects that people have kind of given up hope on and using those as your case studies to show show the thing by doing it. Those have been some of my big takeaways from this. And just so excited to see people going to the moon and 3D printing on the moon. I mean, that's, that sounds good to me. <laughs> so I want to thank you, obviously, Victor, for, for taking part today. And obviously, at the start of this episode, we also had Brian Whitaker and, and, and Helica Kerarte. 
And uh, we want to thank them as well. So Derek, a big, big goodbye. Yeah. Derek, thank you for everyone for coming Absolutely. out. Yes. Loved it, loved it. And, um, and as usual, for those of you who are listening, please leave us a review, leave a rating, share with your friends. Let us know if there's a special guest that you'd like for us to interview, or a special topic that you'd like for us to explore. And uh, until next time, uh, let's make it open. <laughs>